Welcome to the C-Cup podcast, brought to you by the BJA. Welcome to the April C-Cup podcast. My name is Eleanor Carter, trainee editor of C-Cup, and today I'll be reviewing the April print edition with Dr. Joyce Young, honorary consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine in the heart of England, and also senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham. Hello, Dr. Young. Hi, Eleanor. How are you doing? So, Dr. Young, as well as your clinical anaesthesia role, you're also a, a clinical academic. Um, could you just briefly summarise your own area of research? Yes, of course. So, I'm really interested in perioperative outcome, um, especially in the older patient. So, the research I've been trying to develop is about looking at patients who undergo hip fracture uh, fixation and seeing what we can do to improve the outcome. And the outcome that I'm particularly interested in is preventing post-operative delirium. Um, and that's a project that I've been trying to uh, develop. Other research interests is uh, critical care and also resuscitation. Those are really fascinating areas of research with the potential to impact on the care of many patients. I'm sure your combined roles in both clinical anaesthesia and academic medicine will allow you to bring some really interesting points to our discussion today. So on to our review of the April edition of C-Cup. This edition contains eight articles covering topics from the basic sciences, intensive care medicine, clinical anaesthesia and pain. Young, which articles have you found particularly useful for refreshing and updating your knowledge on a subject? Yes, I always enjoy reading um, all the articles, um, especially the areas that maybe you won't read in journals necessarily or not so common. So the ones that I found uh, particularly interesting is the one on patient confidentiality, when can a breach be justified? It's very relevant. We often do face the problem with having patients come in critically ill who may or may not have time to have uh, a good discussion about disclosure of information that might be sensitive. Um, and the other one that I liked was chronic pain and depression. Again, a, a good update for someone who's not a pain specialist like myself. I also found the patient confidentiality article really interesting. It's a great overview of best practice with regards to patient data protection and our rights and responsibilities as clinicians in this area. It's also particularly pertinent in view of reach and breaches of data security by healthcare organisations, including the recent finding of the British Pregnancy Advice Service. And I'd agree with you that the articles are really useful for updating your knowledge, especially in your non-specialist areas. I particularly enjoyed refreshing my knowledge on laryngospasm and physiological changes of pregnancy this month. And then, of course, doing the multiple choice questions to check I'd really taken on board the information in the articles. Yes, yeah, so no, definitely. And as a as a author of the articles, you have to write this MCQs and you have to test it on yourself as well. I find it always very useful just a quick um, brief update after reading the article. Yes, absolutely. Right, now we're going to move on to our selected, particularly topical articles of the edition. Dr. Young, which article have you selected? Well, the one that I've selected is uh, about um, patients who are obese on intensive care. Um, again, because I've got an interest in intensive care and I mainly do um, on-course intensive care. And I find it very relevant and very timely. We do find that our patients' uh, weight is uh, definitely, compared to some years ago, uh, have increased. And I know that um, it is a phenomenon that's common in all de developed world. 
it is, it's estimated that probably two-thirds of the population is overweight or obese, um, and that's certainly true for UK and in, the, in America. About 30% of I2 patients are overweight, and we know that that's probably going to increase in the future. Yes, this article entitled Intensive Care Management of Morbidly Obese Patients was a really great overview of all the different challenges that this group of patients can pose us. Were there any particular parts of the article that you were interested to read? Oh, I think, um, it, as you say, you give a really good overview. So actually, I think it's a really good approach to think about the patient comprehensively. So it starts by talking about airway management. And as we know, large patients have a poorer reserve and they can desaturate much quicker so sometimes the time to intervene um, is shorter so I think is is really important when you have a face of an obese patient that you are um, on the lookout for signs of deterioration early um, so you can intervene earlier on and because we know that for the NEP4 study that airway complications are twice as common in intensive care um, because our patients are probably more acutely ill and and especially with the obese patients. So definitely being prepared earlier on and have all the equipment that you might need, like a difficult airway trolley nearby will be very important. And making sure that your team is all prepared to look after a patient with a potentially difficult airway. So I think is a really good preparation point to think about when you admit someone to intensive care who, who is obese. Absolutely. As you say, the National Audit Project 4, conducted by the Royal College of Anaesthetists, highlighted that airway complications are far more common in the intensive care unit population. And if you then add on the extra factor of obesity, it's something that we really must be very well prepared for and aware of in this group of patients. Which other sections of the paper particularly caught your eye? I think it also highlights um, good practice, the practice based on best evidence for all patients. So for obese patients, we know that although their actual body weight or measured body weight is quite high, for ventilation settings, you should still go on ideal body weight. And sometimes that's something that we um, can forget to do when patients come in, not to calculate the ideal body weight. And it's very important that we should do lung protective ventilation for all patients. So definitely go on ideal body weight for ventilation settings. And probably to be aware that some of these patients may have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea. So postoperatively, when they come into intensive care as a high dependency patient, that we should be aware that they may need a bit of um, non-invasive ventilation support during the evening or uh, during the night to support their ventilation. Yes, you make the point there about using patients' calculated ideal body weight to calculate ventilator settings. And this paper also described the different types of weight you can use when managing the obese patient. So either the actual or total body weight, the ideal body weight or the adjusted body weight. And something I found particularly useful in the paper was the table describing which of these weights to use when dosing commonly used medications in the intensive care unit. Did you also find this summary table helpful? Yeah, it's a very useful reminder that some of the drugs that we use should definitely be calculated on ideal body weight rather than the actual body weight. Things could be very relevant, like antibiotics, definitely we'll have to look at the actual body weight and adjust the dose depending on how how high the weight actually goes. So um, very, very, very good reminder that we should look at our drug calculations carefully. The final section of this paper that I was really interested to read was about outcomes for obese patients after intensive care unit stays. And in it, they mentioned something called the obesity survival paradox. What do you understand by this? 
I think because obesity is related to a lot of comorbidities that we know of that's common in the obese population, such as high blood pressure, uh, ischemic heart disease, uh, diabetes and metabolic syndrome. So I think it's almost intuitive that we think that people who are obese will have poorer outcomes from critical illness. But from what we know and from the published literature, that's not actually true. Um, I believe that most of the evidence published said that people who are obese or overweight actually tend to do better than people who are not obese. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, it's probably because we don't understand obesity very well and maybe BMI is a, is a wrong calculation and it doesn't reflect on how fit and healthy someone could be even though their weight can be high. Um, they could still have relatively good cardiovascular fitness um, and it could be that how your body adjusts to being obese may be protective in critical illness. I think we just don't understand it completely yet. Yes, I thought this is really fascinating and I would say that my assumption before reading this paper would be that patients with obesity would have worse outcomes after intensive care unit admission. And although, as you say, we don't fully understand this phenomenon, I think it's something that as clinicians we should bear in mind when admitting this group of patients to the intensive care unit and making predictions about their likely outcomes. Yeah, because they are a challenge challenging population to look after. Um, definitely for nursing staff you need an uh, extra pair of hands for most procedures, rolling the patient, looking after the patient and they may have more comorbidities but um, I don't think we should assume that they will have a poor outcome just because of that. Yeah well thank you that's a, it's a great overview of that article and, and hopefully um, the listeners will look in, at that a bit more depth because there's a, a lot more information in the, in the whole article in the print journal. So moving on to my article pick of the edition, um, I've gone for anaesthesia-related anaphylaxis investigation follow-up. I chose this article because I, I feel that as anaesthetists, we're often very good at the immediate emergency management of anaphylaxis, but maybe sometimes we're less clear about what the next steps in care are. Read this article as well? What, what did you think? Yes, I, I read this article. I think, again, it's very topical because of the National Audit Project um, 6 is going to be looking at anaphylaxis in UK. Um, it's certainly something that um, we all dread, allergic reactions under anaesthesia, um, and also something that we should always be uh, careful about. So definitely very relevant to our practice. Yeah, as you say, um, the National Audit Project 6 is going to be looking at anaphylaxis and hopefully we're going to get some more sort of epidemiological information. As it says in, in the article that the estimated incidence of allergic anaphylaxis is 1 in 5,000 to 1 in 20,000 anaesthetics but actually a lot of our data on that is quite old and we're not sure whether those figures still hold true. And hopefully NAPSIX will provide us with a bit more information. Also, the mortality statistics, so three to six percent is often quoted as mortality from anaphylaxis. But again, a lot of that data is quite old. And again, hopefully NAPSIX will provide us with a, a bit more clarity about exactly how common it is, what the outcomes are for patients and also what the, the triggering factors are. I think the other point I'd really like to bring out from this article is there's some really good case studies in here which really bring into the clinical context what to do with your patient and, and what the investigations are. Did you read these and look at the photos? 
Yes, definitely. Um, what strikes me is that how how many different allergens there are, and not something that sometimes is most common to what we use. Actually, um, something like chlorhexidine, which is not really a anaesthetic drug, but a surgical preparation um, uh, medication, could also have uh, allergic potential, which is uh, which I find quite interesting. Yes, and I think early on in the article they mentioned that when referring patients who've had a suspected anaphylactic reaction under anaesthesia, about 40% of the suspected allergens turn out to be incorrect because clearly we're giving a lot of drugs simultaneously and then there's additional things like chlorhexidine skin preparation that's going on at the same time. So teasing out actually what the triggering factor was can be pretty difficult. Yeah. Did um, if So if we have someone with um, an allergic reaction and we want to refer them, do you know where we can find um, allergy clinics information? Yes. So in the United Kingdom, the, the best place to access that information is the um, Association of Anaesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland, the AAGBI. If you go onto their website, they first of all got very good information on emergency management, but they also have a list of all the allergy clinics and their contact details um, to let you know where to refer them and if you look through this article it also gives you some really clear information about the information you need to provide that allergy clinic with to enable them to have the best chance of making a, a proper diagnosis. The other section of the article I was really interested to read was about how the actual uh, testing is done because it's not something I've got experience of but I have referred people to allergy clinics and the information about the skin prick and intradermal testing was really interesting to read and clearly these are tests that need skilled interpretation and sensitivity and specificity can can be quite low and it's also noted in the article that actually there's no place for routine preoperative screening because the likelihood of getting a positive test in someone without a known history just just isn't there, which I think is sort of important to take note of as well. I think it's um, it's very interesting that to note that um, there's a lot of cross sensitivity across different agents as well. So I think the ex real expertise is how you interpret these batch of skin testing, um, because I'm I'm sure there's a, a range of allergy reaction for, um, going from being very mild to more severe types of allergy um, reaction and the results from the skin testing will have to be interpreted with, with quite a bit of care and caution as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the, the final section of this article really describes for the practicing anaesthetist what to do with um, patients when they come for further anaesthetic after they've had a diagnosis of anaphylaxis made and hopefully a, a culprit agent identified. And this gives some really good practical advice about how to manage these patients and minimise the chance of them experiencing anaphylaxis again. I think it's really useful as well because the most one of the most common allergies, ache allergy, and and I think it's great that um, the article does say that there's no evidence for um, cross sensitivity between ache, soya, and propofol, which is one of the drugs that we use most often. So I think that dispels some of the myth around ache allergy and propofol. That's really useful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to sum up, really, this is a really useful article for the the practicing anaesthetist that allows you to to manage your patient. Really Really well he's he's had an anaphylactic reaction and, and minimize the chance of it, it happening again
So having discussed these two articles in detail, that concludes our April Seacup podcast. I'd just like to say many thanks to Dr. Joyce Young for her contribution to this month's podcast. And thank you to the authors for their um, articles in this month's edition. I hope listeners will enjoy reading our article picks in the print journal, electronic journal or via the British Journal of Anesthesia app. So thank you, Dr. Young. You're very welcome. Thank you, Eleanor. And goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Seacup podcast.